Okay, so I want to tell you all the things that I learned while listening to this podcast with uh, the founder of Basecamp, Jason Freed. So let me just go ahead and jump right into my notes. Um, I, he was asked the question, like, what is one of the lessons that he learned from his parents? And um, I really liked his answer. He said, I always uh, try to figure out the right thing to do in any given situation. You won't always do the right thing, but you should know what the right thing is. And he gave an example from his childhood. He had a really close friend. Uh, that friend's family um, didn't have enough money. They both played basketball at the time, and they wanted to attend like some kind of basketball camp or some kind of training. And so Jason's dad just said, you know what? Um, I, I'm just going to pay for it. I'm just going to pay for your friend's admission uh, because it's the right thing to do. It's not his fault uh, that his parents at that particular moment in time didn't have the money for it. And since we have a little extra money, like, let, why not help this person out? Um, and then they get into a little bit about like the environment. So um, Jason's widely known for like his opinions on how to run a business. And he says, we made sure to create an environment that no one is looking around to see who is working the hardest. He actually makes a really interesting point here. He said, hard work to me is manual labor. We are making software. This isn't hard work. He's, uh, then I think he continues just with like a really positive frame of mind. He says, we're fortunate to be able to do this. We can sit in AC and work on a computer. And so uh, Jason actually expanded on this. Uh, on the this idea in a blog post, and the blog post is um, titled "If you're reading this, you probably don't work as uh, don't work hard." And he's talking about like designers, programmers, tech entrepreneurs, investors, that kind of thing. Um, so he kind of reserves the 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 phrase "hard work" for people that are actually like. I think in the essay he talks about you know if you have to be outside eight hours a day, ninety degree heat, picking lettuce, like that's hard work. Sitting in AC and doing creative work. Although challenging is not how you would define hard work. So I, I went ahead and linked that blog post um, in my notes. If you want to read it, I'd recommend. His, his writing's fantastic. Um, and he, he continues on, on the idea that, you know, limit the amount of hours that you're working. And he says, you don't need 12 plus hours a day to do great work. The reason people are working longer hours is not because there are 12 hours of work to do. It's because they can't find a few continuous uninterrupted hours to do their work. Anybody who works at a large company or in an open office floor plan definitely knows that feeling. And he says this is what they do to counter that. At base camp, everyone gets a full eight hours a day to themselves. How they spend it is up to them. If you want to take someone else's time, you have to ask them for it. And this is one of my favorite quotes of the entire podcast. Time is incredibly valuable. You should have a good reason to ask for someone else's time. I think this is something that's abused. Not only, like, I think people abuse it in your personal life too, but definitely at work as well. And a little, uh, get in a little bit of details about how they do product development. Uh, Basecamp organizes product development in six-week cycles. There are usually two or three product teams working on features that we want to build at any given time. These teams are three people or less. I think he's, in the past he's, he's, ta he's talked about these small teams. He considers them like semi-autonomous units, which I thought was an interesting way to describe it. Six weeks is enough time to make substantial progress on something that is important. Shortly after that, he talks about, uh, you know, you've probably heard this before, but, you know, work will expand to the amount of time you give it. If you have six weeks, you'll probably get it done in six weeks. If you give it three months, it'll take three months. And if you give it a year, it'll take a year. Um, so he's asked the question, well, well, how do you know, like, what to work on next? And he, uh, he, he responded, as the cycle is coming to an end, a few of us get together and think about what, should we, what we should do next. And these could be anything from ideas we've had for a while or uh, requests that have come up through customers. 
Um, and while he's describing his work process, the ho- he's talking to Shane, the host of Knowledge Project. And Shane thought something was interesting. He's like, you're using the word feel a lot. That's interesting when we're in this age of algorithmic informed insight. And I love Jason's point here and something I feel uh, very strongly about. He says, I put a lot of value on feel, gut, and intuition. We are not a data-driven company in terms of product development. Um, now he says, we do use data. And I, my, the added note I have there is when it's appropriate. So if we use data like, like on the performance of our infrastructure, you're going to want to know how that's performing. You want to use data for that or how long it takes to respond to a customer. Um, so I like that he, you know, he's not against data. He's just like, don't use it for product development. You know, like you have, that you're building what you're building for a reason. You have thoughts and you've, and, and desires and, and things that you've thought about it for a very long time. Like, why don't you trust your gut? Um, and then he talks about, you know, too much information is probably a bad thing. I try to be ignorant about the trends in the industry and what competitors are doing. So he, he, he elaborated on this. He's like, listen, I obviously know what they're doing, but I'm not going to go in depth into their product and look at every single feature and kind of like, oh, maybe I should copy that. He says, the more I pay attention to that stuff, the less free my mind is. You have less space for your own thoughts. So it's probably a bad idea. And we've heard this many times to look to your competitors for inspiration, but it's not a bad idea to look to other areas of life for inspiration, hopefully different than, than that of your competitors, because then you're going to introduce new ideas into your work. And he, in my opinion, he pays attention to the, he gets inspiration from very important sources. He says, I prefer to pay t- attention to things out of my industry. I get inspiration from architecture, art, nature. Um, then as he continues to expound on his business philosophy, he's like, listen, we're not here to dominate an industry. We just need to find a small number of customers who believe in what we are doing. And we found many of them. Over 100,000 people pay for Basecamp every month. Uh, you only need millions of customers if your costs are out of control and you have thousands and thousands of people. We only have 55 people. Then he's asked the question, hey, uh, what can you tell, tell me about some people that run businesses that you admire? And he had a, really, a lot of really interesting um, answers to this question. He says, listen, my friend has a small grocery store. It's right up the corner from where I live. I admire that he can get to know his customers by name. Um, he can experiment faster by putting something out and seeing how fast it sells. Then he continues, there's a repair shop down the street from me that's been in business for 80 years. That blows my mind. I admire what Stripe is doing and, and how they are doing it. I admire Charlie Munger for his clarity of thought and his commitment to values and common sense. I admire a personal trainer I know. I'm jealous that it's just him. It's kind of nice to not have any employees, to truly do your own thing your own way. Another great quote here is, one of the great ways to win in business is to just survive. The best way to survive is to be profitable. Um, and this is another idea about valuing the value, the idea that to work at your company, your employees have rejected a, a countless other opportunities. So respect that. He says, if someone chooses to work for your company, they're saying no to a million other opportunities. I should respect that and create a place where they can do their best work. I really like that perspective. Another great idea. Be careful when setting arbitrary goals. He gives an example and there's parallels to, from running to business. He says, I wanted to run a six minute mile. I didn't hit that goal and I remember being disappointed. Then I thought about why was I disappointed? I enjoyed the run, I got fresh air, I worked out my body, my heart, and my mind. I saw things while I was running that I was excited about. How are any of these outcomes negative? If you measure yourself against the number, you can, you can feel disappointed. It is not a satisfying way to go through life, especially when you realize that every, every goal we have 
it's just arbitrary. We're just picking numbers out of thin air and then just trying to go after them. Um, I used to try to speed things up. I've come back to a slower pace. I wondered why I was rushing. Why was I trying to pack everything into my head? That's definitely something I'm guilty of as well. Like I feel like sometimes I approach life in a perpetual rush. And uh, again, not a pleasant way to go through life. The, the conversation turns into parenting. And he says, listen, I decided not to ask other people on parenting. It's hard to evaluate the information and compare. Uh, personally, him and his wife, they're a fan of child-led learning. Their kid goes to Montessori school. Um, he likes letting them get into whatever they're into, choosing you know the path for their own life. That's something I do with my daughter as well. And he has a book recommendation on parenting that he enjoyed. It's called The Self-Driven Child. And of course, I'll link that in the notes as well. And then the advice he's going to give his children. Hey, find your path, figure out what you like, find out what drives you, find out what you are curious about and go into that. There is a lot of depth in anything. And that's just great old-fashioned wisdom. The thing that surprises me most is how poorly school teaches people how to write and communicate. So a lot of people apply to the few openings Basecamp has. He reads a lot of the, the cover letters and he's like, he came to the conclusion you can graduate college and not really know how to explain yourself well or get to the point. And that's definitely something I've learned from him, like the, the power of writing and you should practice at it. Um, so he talks a little bit about the books they wrote. Rework is about how we run our business. It's our cookbook. We're saying here are our recipes. The new book, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, is about pushing back on unhealthy work trends. And he talks about, hey, I've always been inspired by chefs. They aren't afraid of sharing their recipes. They aren't afraid of someone taking those recipes, opening a restaurant, and putting them out of business. So he's saying, hey, most of the stuff that you think is proprietary about your business is probably not. It's just better to share those ideas for other people. There's tens of millions of people all over the world that are interested in entrepreneurship, and they can benefit from your experience and your ideas. Why aren't you sharing them? Um, and that's what I, what I think is so great about podcasts is like entrepreneurs may, may not have time to sit and write as much as they want to, but they sure uh, they sure as hell talk a lot on podcasts. And by by collecting that information, spreading it to other people, I think is very helpful. Um, and then Shane has a really interesting idea about, you know, maybe there's, there should probably be better boundaries for work and home life. And a lot of uh, companies are comfortable pushing into your home life, which is probably not a good thing. So he says, Shane has an idea that people that interrupt their time with their family to respond to work messages are trying to signal to their family that they are important because someone needs their help. His opinion is you're actually, it's inverse signaling. You're signaling the opposite of what you think you're sig signaling, that you don't know what you should be truly valuing. So his theory is that people that send the messages after work, the ones that you have to respond to, are actually the ones that are most unhappy with their relationships outside of work. And he says, this creates a virus of unhappiness. Jason responded by saying, you know what, I might think, sadly, it might signal that the person would rather be at work than with their family, which is terrible. And I'll, uh, this is the last one, I'll close on this. Um, and this is Jason's opinion on screen real estate, which I find similarly i used to have like extra screens and then i'd have a bunch of browsers open on your screen i'm like what am i doing like why am i not focusing on one thing at a time like i'm i'm being pulled from this window to the next like what if I, what if i reorganize my work and say this is the single signal single most important thing i should be working on and that's the only thing i'll be work or looking at till it's done and he's <laughs> it's really funny the last sentence made me chuckle he says i think you don't want a lot of screen real estate I'm a one screen at a time person. I find that to help I find that to help me focus and to be valuable. I see a lot of manic switching and attention deficit disorder when it comes to work. That's definitely describes how I can be at times. And I'm obviously trying to fix that. He says uh, you can see these people with seven screen ups. 
You don't need that. This isn't NASA missing control. <laughs>